This is a CBC Podcast. Are you saying that it's possible that this high-profile arrest could be what tips us into a recession? I really don't think the answer is banning things. He's backed himself into a corner here. Yep. I love Canada, by the way. I have so many friends. And Justin Trudeau at one point said... Yeah, although really you're getting marriage proposals already. Lucky me. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jamie Poisson. This is Frontburner, CBC's daily news podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. This is me shooting. Oh, wow, yeah. I just shot my... You killed yourself <laughs> in like 10 seconds. Danse, Anine, Boujou, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. It's been just over three years since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released its 94 calls to action. Many of those calls centered around education, with a focus on integrating Indigenous content into school curriculums. So how far have we come? And who is leading the way? We need to take the time first to educate the educators. What stops them a lot of the time is not just fear of doing something wrong, but also not knowing where to begin. I call myself a recovering high school teacher (laughs) because I burned out. And I I lasted three years. You know, there's some work that I think people need to do on their own. And I think that's part of, of active learning. You learn when you're early because that's when your eyes are the biggest. The teachers... They want us to succeed. It's just important to, like, to me personally, to just give back and be that person for somebody else. Today on Radio Indigenous, putting reconciliation into education. And the teachers tasked with making it happen. Well, we asked and teachers answered. A few weeks ago, we posted these questions on our social media. Calling all teachers. What are your biggest challenges teaching Indigenous content in your classes? And what would make it easier? Well, we heard from a lot of teachers on Twitter, Facebook, and through our email. Here's one of the responses. Sarah Bichard, who teaches arts education for K-12 students in Milestone, Saskatchewan, wrote... I wish I'd had more Indigenous education before going into education myself. I think showing students your own efforts and respect for a culture you are attempting to learn goes a long way. I don't have to be an expert. I have to want to understand. Well, my next guest spends a lot of his time teaching teachers just like Sarah. Nigon Sinclair is Anishinaabe and an associate professor at the University of Manitoba. He also describes himself as a recovering high school teacher. When he's not in the classroom, Negon travels across the country talking to teachers about education, reconciliation, and how the two are intertwined. Welcome, Negon. Bonjour. Hello. Now, you just heard from Sarah, and you've seen the deluge of responses we got from teachers when we asked about this. What do you hear from teachers when you're out at professional development days or conferences? I think just some fears around the immensity of it, like where do I begin? That I don't want to do more damage or mm. or I don't want to say something that's wrong or that'll offend. So beyond that fear of the taking the first step, diving in, what is the number one challenge that you hear from teachers in bringing curriculum to their classrooms? There's a, a general misunderstanding around Indigenous education that it's just social studies, right? Mm. And that it's just English. But... Uh, indigenous education really is every part. I mean, it is astronomy, it is physics, it is geography, 
It is physical education, all of those things. So I think trying to understand how that relates with their subject area, but then also understanding that these things cross subject areas. Uh, and more importantly, they, they also go outside of the classroom to be able to understand, for instance, how indigenous peoples uh, view the sky or to how they view science. You also have to spend time out in the world. Like you, if you're to talk about the language, for example. So many of our languages talk about the world as an animate place, a place of life, place of spirit. Mm-hmm. That's impossible to understand unless you go spend time with a tree and looking at what a tree means and how does a tree express itself or how does a bear write because bears mark trees. That's that's literacy and being able to understand those things and see them out in the real world is really what Indigenous education is all about. Mm -hmm. Now, before you started working at the university level, you were a high school teacher in Winnipeg. Um, When you began your teaching career, was reconciliation even a conversation? No, I was the only Indigenous teacher in the south end of Winnipeg, Mm. which is like a quarter of the city. And uh, but, you know, I I also walked in the footsteps of many incredible people uh, who had opened the doorway for me. People like Helen Satie and Lara Fitzner and Maya Laramie. I mean, people incredible, mostly women who fought bravely in the 1980s to be able to say that Indigenous education matters and Indigenous teachers matter. And then Mm -hmm. I got a job in the 19 late 1990s. The the amount of stress that goes on that, however, um, I was at a time in which Indigenous education was really a very new thing. You had to argue for its relevancy uh, on every single step. So what were they teaching, basically, about Indigenous people? Well, it was <laughs> it was pretty much the way that I uh, saw my textbook when I was in grade five. The you know, first five pages were, uh, we were in loincloths, we came across a Bering Strait, and we threw a bunch of spears... And then, boom, Europeans show up. And then it's 450 pages about how awesome Europeans are, and they built a country, and they, et cetera. And then Indigenous people show up really twice. One is Louis Riel. We fought the treaties. And then number two is uh, we're Chief Crowfoot. We accepted the treaties. So we're either a bad Indian or a good Indian. Mm. And, and that, those kinds of stories, uh, we were very much ornaments to the country. And, and if anything, we were dropped in as examples of larger Canadian dominance than anything else. Mm-hmm. When I was in school, Indigenous peoples were very much not a part of the school. Yeah, yeah. The only only time I ever saw a writer, for example, was when I would go to the library and find way tucked in the very back a copy of In Search of April Raintree. And uh, that was where I think began to open up. But you really had to look for it. You really had to go dig it around. Yeah. Um, So have schools come very far in terms of what they're teaching about Indigenous people? I think they've moved farther because of the amount of Indigenous teachers who have entered the system. There's not in any way, you know, an avalanche of Indigenous teachers who have... Usually a school will hire one or two, Mm -hmm. but that will drive an agenda in which they're in the staff room talking to other teachers, and then pretty soon you have a group of teachers who are working on collective interdependent units. Uh, Pretty soon you're going on trips. Pretty soon you're changing the the logo on the football team. Pretty soon there's other people coming in, elders, storytellers, professors coming in, start working with the school itself. You invite one of us. (laughs) That's right. You better be ready for the whole family. Bring in my cousins. Thanks, Negan. Nigon Sinclair is a professor at the University of Manitoba. Uh, Now, he's going to stay with us here on the show today. A little later, he'll be back with two other educators to address some of the concerns that we heard from teachers and offer a little advice. Still to come on Unreserved, whether it's in the classroom or on the page, getting it right is important. 
Wabgijik Rice is a journalist and a fiction writer who balanced historical accuracy with a dystopian vision of the future in his new novel. Any story about an Indigenous community that's endured colonialism has to be part of a history lesson anyway, mm-hmm. um, in order for readers to understand what exactly has happened in this country. Wab Gijik Rice on his latest novel, Moon of the Crusted Snow, in just a few minutes. But first... Teachers are finding more and more innovative ways to bring Indigenous content into their classrooms. A grade 5 class at Broad Door Elementary School in Cape Breton gets hands-on lessons in Mi'kmaq culture. They learn how to play a traditional game played with a wooden dish and two-sided dice made out of a caribou bone. Barry Bernard is the coordinator of Mi'kmaq Education for the Cape Breton Victoria Centre for Education. He takes the game to different schools and teaches kids Mi'kmaq culture through play. Uh, Waltus could easily have been played with uh, math counters and some plates, but it wouldn't give that same feel for the kids. When they came in, they really got that feel that this is an authentic experience, and I feel if we can have more of these uh, first-hand experiences, then we wouldn't have that issue for treaty education or reconciliation. You know, it'd just be something that's part of their curriculum already. Tammy McDonald is the vice principal at Bradour Elementary School. She says bringing in educators like Bernard helps students learn about Mi'kmaq culture all year around. Traditionally, we have just learned things about Mi'kmaq culture during Mi'kmaq History Month and we've been um, basically compartmentalizing and just kind of having a checklist of things that that we need to do and we're trying to move away from that. We're trying to have um, build reconciliation and trying to have the children make Mi'kmaq culture part of their everyday and, and building those relationships. So the fact that they have the opportunity to play a Mi'kmaq game and enjoy it is just wonderful for us. Thanks to the CBC's Nicole McLennan for sharing that story with us from Cape Breton. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM 169. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. A few weeks ago, we posted a question on Twitter and Facebook asking teachers to tell us about the challenges they face trying to incorporate Indigenous curriculum into their classrooms. Here's one response from Angela Burns. She tweeted... I think students and teachers sometimes see First Nations, Métis, and Inuit content as only history and still have very little understanding of who groups are as modern people. In just a minute, I'm going to talk to an author whose work addresses a lot of the issues we've seen coming up again and again on Twitter. But before we talk to him, let's hear some of his words brought to life. Bonjour. He began, Chimigwech for coming down here today. As you all know, we've been having some problems with power and satellite connections, so we're here to give you an update. First, though, I'd like to call up our elder Eileen to start this meeting with a smudge and a prayer. That's actor Billy Morasti reading from the audiobook version of Wabgijik Rice's new novel, Moon of the Crusted Snow. If you haven't read the book yet, here's a quick summary. With winter looming, a small northern Anishinaabe community goes dark. Cut off, people become passive and confused. Panic bills as the food supply dwindles. 
while the band council and a pocket of community members struggle to maintain order. An unexpected visitor arrives, escaping the crumbling society to the south. Soon after, others follow. Wab Rice is a journalist as well as an author. He hosts Up North, CBC's afternoon show that airs in Sudbury and Thunder Bay. And I've reached him in Sudbury. Welcome, Wab. Ani, hi, Rosanna. Hello. Now, in reading this book, I was struck by a few things. It's great, by the way. Thank you, miigwech. The first thing that I noticed was the use of language, like we heard in that clip. There are some places where you define the Anishinaabe Moan and other places where you don't. Why did you want to include language in the book in this way? Well, it was important for me as a Anishinaabe person to try to reflect some of the language to the best of my own ability. Uh, but it was just about reflecting the, the day-to-day parlance that thrives in a lot of our communities, that there is some decent knowledge still in a lot of places of Anishinaabemowin, and it exists, and it's part of band council meetings, it's part of family gatherings. Um, but just to have it live in on the page, especially in a, a book that's, you know, somewhat widely distributed that a lot of uh, non-Indigenous people will read, um, I just wanted them to, to know what the language looks like. You didn't have a language guide, though. I know it's many books, you know, they'll have, you know, go to the back with the glossary. How come you didn't uh, feel it necessary to guide people through that? We considered that, like putting in um, a, a pronunciation guide, at least in mm-hmm. the end. But, you know, there's some work that I think people need to do on their own. And I think that's part of, of active learning is uh, taking, you know, what you see beyond the page and beyond your personal experience and sort of factoring in other elements to help you understand on your own. Mm-hmm. Your book is set almost entirely in a northern community. You grew up in Wasoxing First Nation, Perry Sound, Ontario. And I think that's what makes this book so authentic is that you can tell there's an element of lived experience and knowledge about how you write. And when we think about books being taught in schools and read by the rest of the country, there is a need to make sure the information and history that's being shared is correct. And that's becoming a bigger and bigger deal with Indigenous storytelling. There's so much misinformation, Mm. so many things that have not been taught at all. So you took an interesting approach to try to correct some of that in weaving, you know, your journalism and, and this information into the details of your book, but it didn't sound like a history lesson. I didn't feel like Mm. I was being, this is what it's like here. (laughs) You know what I mean? So let's take a listen to another clip from the audio book read by Billy Morasti. It had become protocol to open any community events or council meetings with a smudge. This protocol had once been forbidden, outlawed by the government and shunned by the church. When the ancestors of these Anishinaabe people were forced to settle into this unfamiliar land, distant from their traditional home near the Great Lakes, their culture withered under the pressure of the incomers' Christianity. The white authorities displaced them far to the north to make way for towns and cities. But people like Eileen, her parents, and a few others had kept the old ways alive in secret. They whispered the stories and the language in each other's ears even when they were stolen from their families to endure forced and often violent assimilation at church-run residential schools far away from their homes. They had held out hope that one day their beautiful ways would be able to re-emerge and flourish once again. That's a bit from Wab Gijig Rice's Moon of the Crusted Snow, read by actor Billy Morasti. I wanted to play that clip, Wab, because in just under a minute you cover ceremony, 
territorial displacement, residential schools, loss of culture, and how it was preserved in secret by our elders. What was your intention by presenting this so much historical information as part of your narrative? That was a, a challenge, absolutely. That basically summarized, you know, in just a few paragraphs, uh, the the experience of settler colonialism, right, mm-hmm. and and being displaced, and which is by and large a universal experience for you know most First Nations in what is now Canada. Understanding who exactly you're reaching is is another challenge too, because you know the the question comes up: Who are you writing this for? Like an Indigenous audience or a non-Indigenous audience, et cetera, et cetera. I think it goes beyond that, though, when you're considering these things, um, because there are a lot of Indigenous people who don't uh, necessarily have all the knowledge of this historical context either, mm-hmm. you know, whether they were scooped from their families and raised elsewhere, or whether they're urban Indigenous people who have long since lived off uh, off their reserves and, you know, didn't have that understanding in the school system of what exactly happened to Indigenous people on this land, right? Mm-hmm. Any story about an Indigenous community that's endured colonialism has to be part of a history lesson anyway, mm-hmm. um, in order for readers to understand what exactly has happened in this country. Right. Now, we are taking a special focus on education on the show today, but we hear from teachers all the time asking for book suggestions um, that are authentic and accurate. Uh, representations of Indigenous people in our communities. Wob, what would a book like yours, Moon of the Cross of Snow, have meant to you as a high school student? Oh, it would have meant a lot. To have read a book by a Anishinaabe author would have uh, changed my world, essentially, at a younger age, you know. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate to read some authors by the time I got to high school, not in the high school curriculum, mind you, books that were given to me by an aunt of mine. And it was the first time I'd realized that Indigenous people could be authors, that their experiences could be viably conveyed through the, through the book format. Right. You know, it was authors like like Jordan Wheeler, Thomas King, Lee Miracle, Louise Erdrich, you know, Richard Van Camp. But I didn't get that in the school at all. Fortunately, nowadays, there are so many brilliant authors and storytellers out there producing books for young people. And I think we're going to have, you know, a much more engaged and much richer sort of palette of storytelling coming out of younger indigenous communities because of that. So it's it's a hugely exciting time. Wob, thank you so much for your time today. Miigwech, Rosanna. Thank you very much for having me. It's a huge honor to chat with you. Wob Gijik Rice's new novel, Moon of the Crusted Snow, is out now on ECW Press. Well, we're standing right in the middle of the forest. Uh, there's trees among us, and actually the, the, uh, the trees are decorated really nicely with snow. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Wilson Bearhead. I come from the uh, Paul First Nation. Sometimes you have to step outside the box to find the right learning experience. Norquest College hosted a land-based learning symposium at their school in Edmonton in the fall. And for the elders teaching the teachers, the classroom just didn't cut it. So they went out on the land. Our Kyle Musica went with them on the trek at the Strathcona Wilderness Centre to learn about land-based learning through teachings. Because we live in this world, there's many things that we need to learn and through story or just through experience. And uh, this gave me the opportunity to share our stories and, and take them on an experiential journey, understanding our relationship uh, to this world and everything that's around us. The gifts that really look after us. Sometimes we have the view that uh, we can use whatever we want just for our purpose alone. But forgetting that uh, these two were brought here 
everything that's here was brought to here by, by Waka, our creator. And those were the kind of stories that I spoke to the people about today. Those types of stories go will have a long history. The old people way back, uh, they use those stories to ground you as a child. And I remember that um, my grandmother, she's gone on now, but her name was Annie Bearhead. And uh, she had the opportunity of guiding me and, and teaching me the stuff that I shared today. Hi, my name is Lyndon Sungens. I'm from Goodfish Lake, Alberta, and I work for Edmonton Public at Westmount Junior High School. A lot of our kids don't have the opportunity to get out on the land and learn from the land and learn from elders. So whatever I can bring back to them gives them a chance to uh, experience that. Just knowing that getting out, experiencing what's out here with one another, it's, it's so vital and important to our youth. I think just making connections with people like Wilson and, you know, learning and gathering from them, it'll give me a chance to maybe bring my students to him or bring my students out to a place like this and share a little bit about what he said. I know for my grandmother, it was important for me to to learn those stories. She said, when you learn when you're early, because that's when your eyes are the biggest and that's when your ears are the, are the biggest. You're willing to sit and learn. And I think that's important because children have that ability to sit and learn. And usually they're amazed by by the stories that they hear. It makes them think. That was Elder Wilson Bearhead of the Paul First Nation. When we asked teachers about challenges integrating Indigenous content in their K-12 classrooms, we heard from several French and immersion teachers. They told us the material they need just isn't there. High school teacher Miriam Walker wrote, My department and I have been finding and adapting resources to suit the needs of grades 9 to 12 core students. But working on our own, with no extra release time devoted to this, in addition to the other initiatives, duties, and curriculum changes we must incorporate, this takes a long time. Andrea Schnell is a librarian based in Ottawa. She's bilingual and has done some work identifying Indigenous materials written in French. Finding resources, uh, French language resources that discuss Indigenous perspectives on issues is sort of a twofold process because there's the problem of actually finding what's out there, learning about what's out there, regardless of what language it's published in, and then because the majority of those resources are published in English, there's the problem of finding a resource in French or finding an equivalent resource um, that's been translated into French. Chanel is giving a presentation to the Ontario Library Association with tips on where to find Indigenous material in French. She hopes the presentation will give French teachers another option besides doing all the work themselves. What I'll be trying to do is showing librarians and teacher librarians ways in which they can find and integrate uh, French language resources into their collections. I think that a lot of people want to contribute to the effort of reconciliation, and I think what stops them a lot of the time is not just fear of doing something wrong, but also not knowing where to begin. With fewer resources being available in French, I think people who are teaching in French are even more likely to be overwhelmed by that by that problem. So what I would like to do in my presentation is give them a place to start, let them be able to learn from what I learned, finding these resources and hopefully giving them the confidence to continue on on their own. 
Andrea Schnell's presentation will be on the Ontario Library Association's website by the end of February. And if you're looking for more places to find some material, head over to our Twitter feed at CBC Unreserved. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM 169. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today on Radio Indigenous, the challenges of incorporating Indigenous content into Canadian classrooms. When the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released their calls to action in 2015, many addressed education directly. Since then, school boards, divisions and administrators have been attempting to answer some of those calls. But the majority of that work falls on classroom teachers, who often have little connection, knowledge, or even a clear framework of how to make this happen. Well, we're here to dig more deeply into this. I have some guests with me. In Winnipeg is Negan Sinclair, who is a Nishinaabe and an associate professor at the University of Manitoba. He also teaches the teachers across Canada about education and reconciliation. Welcome, Negan. Bonjour. Hello. Carolyn Roberts is Coast Salish and is the principal of Amultison Esquimalt, or in English, Capilano Little Ones School. She's in Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us. Esquimalt. And Colinda Klein is the curriculum lead for First Nation Inuit and Métis Education with the Upper Grant District School Board in Guelph, Ontario. She is Anishinaabe from Kitigan-Zibi. Welcome, Colinda. Hi, Kwekwe. Thanks for having me, Rosanna. And thank you all for being here. Kalinda, let's just start with you. Now, you do professional development for teachers from kindergarten to grade 12, helping teachers integrate these topics into their classrooms. What is the main thing that you hear from teachers? I think the main thing that teachers say over and over is that they don't know what they don't know. And the next step on that is that they are afraid of getting it wrong. And so we have so much work to do in helping the teachers understand things that they did not get in their own elementary or secondary education, for the most part didn't get in their university education. And so that's the reality for most folks who are teaching right now. And so we need to be able to give them some background knowledge so they know how to do this work. Right. Carolyn, you've said that we don't need more crafts and lessons for teachers to use. We need them to learn the history. What do you mean by that? When we're asking educators to teach something that they don't know and that they don't understand, we have to give them the tools and the understandings for it. We need to take the time first to educate the educators so that they have a strong understanding of why it is that this kind of work is important for them. Mm. Let's go to Negan now. Negan, you you talk to teachers across the country, and we talked a little bit about this at the top of the show, uh, about reconciliation education. Now, what we're hearing from teachers is that they understand this expectation and maybe even welcome this expectation, but they don't have the tools to meet these goals. For example, we heard from one history teacher who said they're still using outdated textbooks because the new ones haven't been improved yet. Negan, how do we even begin to fix this? 
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the two most important TRC calls to action is 62 to 63. Uh Uh, 62 calls for the training of teachers and 63 calls for two elements. One is that curriculum that you talked about should be implemented and also should be tailored to a classroom. But then 63C, that's 63A, 63C says we should create students that have intercultural understanding, empathy, and mutual respect. Uh If we were able to do that, so much would be dealt with. What does that mean, though? Well, the challenge is how do we create human beings that are competent? That is truly what I think Indigenous education is so crucially giving for young people, is that makes them understanding of fundamentally what does it mean to be Canadian? What does it mean to have an inherent relationship with Indigenous people? And how do we live together? Mm -hmm. Those things go into every part of a school. Like imagine for a moment you ask a... Uh, a grade 12 student, what was the most memorable part of your school experience? None of them are going to say Romeo and Juliet. None of them are going to say algebra. It's not that those things aren't important. It's that what are they going to say is relationships with my friends, with my teachers, the band trip, the hockey, tr- the hockey team, whatever it might have been. It's relationships that we teach as schools, not curriculum. And that's where 63.3 comes into because a school must be thought of as, as a social system. It is a place in which not just the books matter, but also the posters we put up, who we hire, the songs we sing on the intercom, the uh, words that we use to describe the sports team. These are all things of what we teach young people. Like You can teach residential schools, for example, at any grade level, but Mm -hmm. you obviously don't teach kindergarten students about violence and genocide at kindergarten. Here's what you teach them. You teach them about how important parents are. What does it mean to share? What does it mean to have love? And how then they're prepared for the conversation of when those things were taken away, whether you have a conversation then or whether you have a conversation later, they're prepared to be able to understand what how re- residential schools didn't just impact Indigenous people, it impacted the entire country. Mm-hmm. A- another complication, of course, is that um, education is under provincial or territorial oversight which means application of this varies greatly across the country. In Manitoba, there are directives to weave content across subject areas. But in Ontario, the changes being implemented are just in history and social studies, or at least that was the plan. Um, We heard from J.C. Lamb, a teacher in Toronto, who wrote, In Ontario, the workshops that were supposed to occur last summer were suddenly cancelled right before they were to be held in Toronto. Kalinda, how is this affecting teachers and students in Ontario? It's very problematic that our only curriculum that's been updated to include Indigenous content is social studies and history because it's just feeding into that idea that we are peoples of the past rather than the present. And so we really do need to look at how are we weaving it like other provinces The parts that were supposed to be updated that I was super excited about was uh, the primary because I'm thinking if we're looking at at creating the students like Nigan was talking about with that intercultural understanding from 63.3, then we want to start with them straight away when they're coming to school and that's looking at primary education. Caroline, you used to work in the public school system and when we posed the question, you wrote to us about teachers approaching this content with a pan-Indigenous brush, which means taking a singular approach to a vast number of nations in this country that each have their own language, their own culture, their own traditions, their own way of, of being. Um, and you cited lessons around the medicine wheel as a good example of this. Can you tell us about that conversation? 
The worry that I have for when people go and they start to look for curriculum or ideas to bring, they'll find something on Pinterest or they'll <laughs> they'll you know they'll ask somebody else, oh, what did you use? And then the and I just used the medicine wheel as an example because it was in one of our middle schools that everybody was teaching the social studies unit on the medicine wheel, yet none of the teachers could tell me where the medicine wheel came from and what culture it came from. Here in BC, we have many, many different nations with lots of different types of traditions and cultures. And I think that it's really important for the people who are teaching in this particular area and any particular area to know the people around them and what makes them unique as an Indigenous person. Because my worry for teachers who don't know and who don't understand and do not know the history of this land will move forward teaching this generic style of education. Right. Kalinda, here's a response we got from a teacher that I'd like you to speak to. Let's take a listen to it. Hi, this is Lana Steiner. I work as a math coach and teacher for a Good Spirit School Division in Yorkton, Saskatchewan. I teach math and weaving Indigenous content into mathematics is challenging. Last summer, I created a project where I explored the math and the star blanket patterns. I reached out to an elder and learned about the cultural significance of the star blanket. I also made contact with two artists who use the star blanket pattern frequently in their work. Now the challenge is to figure out how to translate this experience into an experience for students in the classroom. I would love to learn more about the resources and gain a deeper understanding of how to integrate a First Nations perspective into mathematics education. At this point, I believe that my integration is superficial. Wow, there's so much math in our nations. Kalinda, go ahead, give that list out. We've been doing some really amazing projects as part of the First Nations and Métis Math Voices group where we've been bringing folks in who carry knowledge and have the knowledge keepers share a practice with students. So, for example, we've done beaded medallions. uh, We've looked at loom beading. We've looked at Métis patterning in loom beading, Métis finger weaving as the students are learning the particular skill, then we unpack the math. This last week we did a project. I I was a little apprehensive about it because we had over 40 uh, grade 6 students that we did loom beating with, and we've never done that many at once. And what was so beautiful on the third day, once the students knew what they were doing, how they came in and not a single adult in the room, there were five of us, said a word, the kids all went right to their tables and they got right to work. Mm. And, and and that was the beautiful model of student engagement. They were so engaged in what they were doing. They were so appreciative because we, we had a circle at the end and all of the students were so thankful to the knowledge keepers who then developed those relationships. So going back to what Carolyn said about making sure that, that we are speaking about practices in the area where we are so we have our knowledge keepers sharing what they know and they they live locally. So how are we developing local relationships? How are we engaging students? How are we unpacking the math there? Math-loving kids. Crazy. I know. it's (laughs) The kids often will say, I didn't know I was doing math. Oh, that's the best. uh, In fact, you recently announced an Indigenous Education and Mathematics conference that's happening in May. Yes, we announced that conference in, in just over 24 hours. It was full. Wow. So there, I think that, again, speaks to teachers being hungry yeah, for, sure. for this knowledge of wanting to see how do we do this work 
in a good way. Mm-hmm. Now, next, this tweet from Tracy Salamandra about professional development. Uh, she wrote, my biggest challenge is being an isolated singleton teacher with four and a half different curriculums to teach per year. Great professional development happens during the school year, but my travel and sub costs are not covered by my division. So are there any suggestions from the three of you for summer or flexible online professional development resources? I, the one thing I always tell teachers, and I just did last week at another session that I ran, was that they can do professional development in their pajamas. <laughs> and they can do something like watch Angry Inuk. So it's, uh, I think that that's a film that everyone should be watching and to give them that a little bit of an understanding of the impact that the anti-sealing movement had on the Inui and a glimpse of life in the North. So I always tell teachers that don't think that you always have to go to something that's education specific. It can be something where you're learning yourself. You can read uh, Tanya Talaga's Seven Fallen Feathers. You can listen to her Massey lectures. There are lots of ways to learn just in your own house. There's also the Moodles. The Moodles. Moodles that you can do online through UBC and I think the University of Alberta. They have Moodles where it teaches you the history of Canada. You can also do that from your pajamas in your home. Right on. Pajama learning. Hashtag it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, throughout the show today, we've been reading messages we received from the many teachers that listen. Uh, And you can feel the desire and the urgency that that they want to do this work. But there's also the hesitation, the fear, the, the shame of not knowing or getting it wrong. And so we know that is also a big challenge for the teachers um, and that the proper supports aren't in place to indigenize curriculums at all grade levels in every school in Canada. So, Caroline, what is something teachers and educators listening from anywhere can do to take a step further into doing this work? For me, it comes back down for them to understand the history of the place where they live. Mm. So whether it be the the history of the first peoples that are there, whether it's the colonial history that's there, but a full understanding and a grasp of the importance of knowing this information because it's where you live. So find out whose territory you're on, find out what language they speak, find out about their culture and their traditions, and find out what it means to them um, about having other people living upon their land and what does that look like to, to them. So there's lots of things that people can do, but it's going to take time. They really have to understand and know the history. Super important. Yeah. So, Nigon, is there a risk of uh, fatigue in this for the Indigenous consultants, community liaisons, and Indigenous teachers out there trying to, to meet the demands of this? Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I was a high school teacher. I was the reason I call myself a recovering high school teacher <laughs> is because I burned out. And yeah. I, had, I lasted three years because uh, I was doing three times the job as, as everyone else. I was not only teaching young people, but I was also teaching all of my all of my oh, colleagues. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I talked to my colleagues, they say, hey, can you come speak to my class? And pretty soon I was guest teaching all of these different other teachers' classes. Because I wanted to. I could have said no. Mm-hmm. But... And then at the end of the day, my my principal, I was like the personal consultant for my principal and all things Indigenous. And pretty soon, all the other principals of the division had me come to their school as well. And, you know, pretty soon, I, three years later, I was, I was out of the teaching profession. Mm. But what it did teach me was 
how um, frustrating it was to be a teacher within that system that was very constraining and that had such a need. And that's why I went into the work that I'm doing now, which is supporting teachers to be able to help divisions, administrators understand what it's like to be an Indigenous teacher, but also how important it is that everyone on staff be competent. Because this knowledge, this um, task ahead of us of understanding that knowledge and our relationships falls on everyone within the staff. Mm-hmm. The, the task of making competent Canadians, meaning people who can live in a peaceful way and not perpetrate genocides and violences against a group of people, that's on all of us. And the way that we get there is through Indigenous education. Well, let me ask you you three this. I mean, we're hearing from teachers. We're hearing the challenges um, that they're facing in trying to fit this curriculum in already um, full curricula. Why should teachers bear the burden of this? Why Why isn't administrators and and politicians and these people who who are legislating this on board, or are they? In, in British Columbia, it's now a part of our curriculum that we need to embed Indigenous ways of knowing into all of our teaching mm-hmm. practices. But then it comes, okay, it looks really good on paper. Look at, look at what we're doing. We're trying to move this forward. And yet there's no money for the education of the people who are, who are setting it out. Right. So there's no follow through and there's no supports in there to educate our educators. So what needs to happen, what I see needing to happen from from that system is that it needs to be mandated. It needs to be mandated from our superintendents or assistant superintendents across the board need to have educational for the teachers, the administrators, and all staff within the the school buildings so that they can understand and give them the tools so they will understand where to go, how to get there, and then how to teach this and embed this into their practice. Nikon? Well, I mean, there's nobody more capable than doing it than teachers. Sure. That's the first answer that I would have. I mean, over half the calls to action relate to education. Mm-hmm. And whether that be education in schools or education in workplaces, all of them ultimately have to do with education. And so what that says is is how big the task is, but also how um, teachers, by the mere fact that they are teachers, meaning they are hopeful people who believe in the knowledge of young people, and that you, that training young people in such a way and empowering them can change a world. I think there's probably no one more up for the task. They need to be empowered and resourced, but I believe in teachers. I always believe mm-hmm. in teachers. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing to say. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of apples. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for being part of the panel today. Miigwech. Chi miigwech. Hayachika. Kalinda Klein is the curriculum lead for First Nation Inuit and Métis education with the Upper Grant District School Board. She was in Guelph. Carolyn Roberts is principal of Capilano Little Ones School. She spoke to me from Vancouver. And Negan Sinclair is an associate professor at the University of Manitoba and was with me in our Winnipeg studio. If you want to hear this conversation again or share it with your teacher friends, you can find it on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved. One issue that we heard come up again and again is the need to get more Indigenous teachers into the classrooms. Well, one school division in Winnipeg is approaching this challenge in a very unique way. Potential teachers are recruited right out of their high school classroom. 
I'm at St. John's High School, a part of this innovative new program. Joining me is Stephanie Midford, a teacher here who is part of the Build From Within program, and Shane Bostrom, a project manager for the program. Hello, thank you both for having us here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Um, Stephanie, let's start with you. Please tell me a little bit about, about this program. So the Build From Within program is a teacher development program that students will embark in a six-year journey to become educators. Um, the first two years, they begin in grade 11 and grade 12. Or they're at their home schools first semester. And then the second semester, they are at the Winnipeg Adult um, Education Center. And they're there doing their educational um, assistant diploma. Mm-hmm. And then the following year, in their final year of graduation, they're there again for um finishing their educational assistant diploma. Mm -hmm. And then the last semester of grade 12 year, they're coming back to their high school, doing their core um, subjects, and then they're graduating with both a high school diploma and uh, educational assistant diploma. Wow, that's a lot of work. Yes, it's super awesome. It's very intense, but you know our students are given this opportunity, and they're just gonna they're gonna succeed with the support that's available to them. Mm-hmm. How many students were chosen for this year? Um, Thirty. Where did this uh, the idea for this program come from? It was actually developed here at the Winnipeg School Division. Oh. So, in talking with elders, it was like we need to find from within our division future Indigenous teachers instead mm-hmm. of trying to find them from everywhere else to come in. Right. Mm-hmm. So, if we can develop them ourselves, that's where the idea of building from within. Mm-hmm. So what are students learning um, as part of this program? Well, the program like, is designed that you know, the education portion is going to definitely uh, teach them how to be teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the EA portion is that, that time where they can work with master teachers, we're going to call mm-hmm. them, and you know, learn how to be an educator from the inside, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we're also going to be giving them more opportunities to have cultural awareness, mm-hmm. cultural activities, so that they can actually incorporate more Indigenous culture into the education system that it becomes natural for them. Once they're done in the four years, they will have a, it's called, it's integrated Bachelor of Ed and Bachelor of Arts. So they will have two degrees. Uh, Their majors will be history and English for this cohort. So what's been the response from from students? Is there a lot of interest in the program? What are are you hearing from students who take part? Um, What I'm hearing, I think the biggest thing is that this is an amazing opportunity for them, right? Especially the ones that want to be teachers. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Um, They're embarking on this journey with a group and they're going to be working on this journey together and that it just, it's very much that surrounding that circle for that student to be successful, to become competent and motivated teachers that are going to give back. There are Winnipeg School Division students and, you know, um, I know that when they come back to Winnipeg School Division, they're going to be proud and they're going to have that story to share with their, their future students that they're going to serve. Why is it important for um, the school division or any school uh, system to to have Indigenous teachers? Why do we need more Indigenous teachers in our classrooms? That's, that's so important. Well, the biggest thing is, you know, to see that reflection that see an Indigenous person in front of me who is this role model, mentor, you know, maybe that they can relate to each other in terms of maybe there were struggles and that teacher is able to have that really profound relationship with the student and, you know, give them strength and give them that advice of, you know, you can do this. I did this and this is how I did it and I'm going to encourage you. Um, But I think the biggest thing, though, is to help decolonize our classrooms, right? If we have more Indigenous teacher, like, um, in those roles of leadership, you know, our classrooms will be decolonized. Okay, well, thank you so much both for your uh, for your time. I understand that we're going to be meeting a student. Hi. Hello. What's your name? My name is Ayla Lafort. <laughs> How are you doing today, Ayla? I'm doing very good. I have a basketball game in like a couple hours. So tell me why, why you want to take part in this program. This program is like such a great opportunity. I personally didn't know how I was going to get into university just because I didn't know what I wanted to be. 
And this really represented my identity. And a lot of indigenous kids don't really have that representation to like for them to follow their path. I personally didn't really. This program is like also give back to my community just because it has also given me so much. Like this community, like it may have like a bad like name, like a bad vibe to it. But like there are really good people who are here who want us to succeed, especially in our school, especially Stephanie, Shane, all these people who support us so much. Like the teachers, they want us to succeed. Like it's just important to like, to me personally, to just give back and be that person for somebody else. So what grades do you do you want to teach once you get through the program? I want to teach kindergarten or like like young children. Mm-hmm. How yeah. come? Just because um, when I was a kid, I was bullied a lot. And um, I had this teacher who like helped me become out of my shell because I was a really shy kid. And now I'm like not shy. Like that teacher really helped me become who I am today. In terms of um, seeing other indigenous faces, whether they be teachers or you know, other support staff. Is that is that important to you? Yeah, especially because, as Stephanie said, we were colonized before and our people were brought down for so long. Mm-hmm. And for us to be really building ourselves back up today, especially. But, like, seeing that representation really makes you feel prideful that we are up and coming, that we are no longer, like, being held down, like, mm-hmm. held back, silenced, I guess the word would be. We're being there for our younger generations because the next generation is all that is going to be there for us. That's the future. Yeah. Sure. You're the future. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You might teach my kid by the time uh, she yeah, I might teach my own brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for ch- chatting with me no today. Problem. Thank you for coming. That was Ayla LaFord, a student at St. John's High School in Winnipeg. She is part of the Build From Within program, a program that helps Indigenous students start to become teachers while they're still in high school. You can find out more about this program on our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved. That's it for this week's episode of Unreserved. We'll be back in this radio space next week for more community culture and conversation. This episode was produced by Zoe Tennant, Stephanie Cram, Kyle Musica, and Anna Lazowski. Special thanks to Carmen Ponciano this week and all the teachers who wrote in to share their thoughts with us. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at unreserved at cbc.ca or find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Thank you for listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I go say. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.